while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we, we do recognize our neediness in, in light of passages like this, which, which call us to holiness, which call us to obedience. Father, we recognize our obedience is nothing that we can muster up on our own apart from your grace. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work in us tonight uh, as we hear from your word. We pray that you would empower us and, and give us the, the capacity, the ability to obey what we read here. Father, we love you and we praise you for all that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this week I, I was looking up statistics about the Grand Canyon. And uh, maybe this make, makes me sound a little bit dark. I hope it doesn't, but um, maybe it's deserved. I wanted to find out what the most common cause of death is at the Grand Canyon. So what would you guess? What would you assume is the, the greatest cause of death at the Grand Canyon National Park? Drowning, falling. I didn't hear what you said, Sherry, sorry. I w- <laughs> well, me asking the question is kind of dark, so it's my fault, not yours. Okay, so the most common cause of death at the Grand Canyon is falling off the edge of cliffs. And that statistic does include those who die from traffic accidents. It includes those who who die from heat exhaustion, from medical issues, from natural causes, and even from drowning. Gabe, your point did make the list. But the most common cause of death at the park is falling off the edge of the cliffs. And uh, to make these matters all the more dark, I started to read a couple of stories about people who had fallen off the cliff, and I, I quickly stopped. But some of, the, some of the stories included people who had committed suicide. And after I read this next story, I, I just stopped reading. There was a dad who wanted to play a trick on his daughter and so he pretended to fall off the cliff, and he actually fell. So that, that was posted on the Grand Canyon like website, you know? And um, yeah, it's, it's just awful, right? And because of this, because of all of these statistics, because of these horrendous stories, there are warning signs all over the park, all over the Grand Canyon National Park. In fact, I even found on the website of the Grand Canyon an entire page on the website designated to warn guests against the dangers of falling off the cliffs in the park. So what's the point of a warning? Right? What is the point of a warning anyways? It's to communicate the potential consequences or, or the potential hazards that can result from some type of behavior. And as we go into the book of Hebrews, what we find is that this book functions in many ways like the the tons and tons of of warning signs that you find throughout the Grand Canyon National Park. This, This book is filled with warnings. Warning after warning, which, which all prompt those who are contemplating to abandon Christ to, to come face to face with the realities of what they're contemplating. If you abandon Christ, you will perish. That is the warning that we see over and over again within the letter to the Hebrews. 
You see, this book is all about the supremacy of Christ. It's all about the supremacy of the final message that is revealed through Christ. And because this final message that we have in Christ is supreme, we have to pay a greater urgency to cling to this final word. As we see in our our text here, there are dire consequences for those who abandon this message. So tonight we're going to consider the first of many warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. So here's what our night is going to look like. I want to give a a quick survey of verses 1 through 4, the verses we just read. And I want to make a few comments on these verses. And then I want to back up and just spend some time discussing how we should interpret these warnings. Because this is the first of many to come. And so I want to spend some time just addressing how do we address all of these warnings in the book of Hebrews. And finally, I want to go back to verse 1, and I want to consider this phrase, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And I want to consider some different ways that we can pay attention to this message that we have in Christ. And so let's begin just by surveying verses 1 through 4. Let's look at verse 1. Here we see that we are called to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This is the main commandment that we find in these four verses. Pay attention to what you have heard. This is the primary emphasis of these four verses. And actually, this this one line right here connects everything we see in chapters 1 and 2. This is is the, the adhesive glue that connects the two chapters. So what does Hebrews mean here when it says that we need to pay attention to what we have heard? What is it that we've heard? Clearly, this is a reference to the gospel, the reference to the gospel that we have in Christ Jesus. We just just read about this in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is the message that we must cling to. That is the message that we have heard, that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after he made purifications for sins. So, how do we pay attention to this message? Where do we go in order to pay attention to this message? Well, first off, I want to point out we need to pay attention to everything Christ has spoken and everything Christ has done. And this is important. We need to pay attention to everything Christ has said, but there's more that we need to say here. We can't just stop at the words that came out of Christ's mouth. We need to pay attention to what he actually did. You see, the reason I bring this up is that there's a whole group of people who who are Christians who call themselves red-letter Christians. They place an, a, a special emphasis on the words of Jesus. They want to emphasize the words that came out of Christ's mouth. But here's the thing with that. It doesn't exactly work. Because the most important thing Christ did in his life and ministry 
was die on a cross and rise again from the grave and then ascend to the right hands of the majesty on high. But that's not something that came out of his mouth. That's not something that he said. That's something that he did. The last time I checked my my red letter edition of the Bible, he died and rose again wasn't in red. That was in black. And so we can't just focus on the words in red. We have to focus on the entirety of Christ's life and words. But we don't stop there. We must pay attention to the entire teaching of the New Testament. You see, when you go to the, the, the teachings of Paul, the teachings of John, Peter, James, right, the apostles, as they're teaching, they are shedding light on what the gospel even means. They're shedding light on the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. They're shedding light on the meaning of what Christ said. And so the New Testament brings clarity to the gospels. So in order to pay attention to this word that we have heard, we need to pay attention to the gospels. We need to pay attention to the New Testament, but we can't stop there either. We need to pay attention to what we find throughout all of scripture. You see, the Old Testament prepares the way for Christ. The Gospels explain what Christ said and what he did. And when we get to the New Testament, uh, uh, the teachings of the epistles, what we find is that they are explaining the significance of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We need to pay attention to the entire word of God because the entirety of the scriptures, they communicate. In reality, they communicate one story. You can't dice up the word of God into a, a number of different unrelated stories that have no relationship with one another. No, this is one story. It's one message that has been delivered to the people of God throughout the course of centuries. So in order to pay attention to the scriptures, we need to pay attention to the entire counsel of God, the entire word of God. And so we need to look to God's word and we need to hold on to it with clenched fists, right? Our Our knuckles ought to turn white when we hold the word of God because it's here in the scriptures that we find the path to eternal life, the path to God through Christ. And so later tonight, I want to return back to this section of verse one and consider how we can pay attention. What are some practical ways that we can pay attention? But before we do that, I want to move on and 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 consider the rest of what we find here in verses one through four. So notice, the next thing we see here is that there are consequences for neglecting this great salvation we have in Christ. If you do not pay close attention to this message, you run the risk of drifting away. If you do not hold fast to this word, you will drift away and you will put your soul at jeopardy. See, the consequences for those who do not pay attention to the final word that we have in Christ are severe. If you neglect paying attention to the word, you will drift. Like a ship stranded at sea with nowhere to set its anchor, you will drift. If you do not pay attention to this final word, you will be like that ship with no rock to set its anchor in, and you will begin to be tossed to and fro by the waves and by the wind out there at sea. And so wherever the wind blows, there you will go. And now for the the free-spirited sailor, I get it. That might sound fun. But for the Christian, that is not our calling. 
Our calling as Christians is to stand firm and to not allow our sails to, to drift away when the winds of the culture blow. Right? We cannot allow the gale force pressures of our society dictate our faith. We're called to stay put. But that can't happen unless we've set our anchor into something. And that something is the word of God. That's what keeps keeps us safe. That's what keeps us set in place when the winds begin to blow, and they will blow. You can be sure of that. Think about this for a moment. For the Hebrews, they, they were blowing. The winds were blowing. The winds were seeking to take them away from Christ. The people in the culture, the people surrounding these, these Christians, were calling them to return to the law of Moses, to forsake Christ and to return to the law of Moses. For us, we aren't necessarily tempted to return to the law of Moses, but we are blown around by the culture, right? We are, we are pressured into forsaking the gospel for the morality of the day. And this is interesting, right? The Hebrews are being tempted to, to go backwards to the previous way of doing things, to the law of Moses. For us, our peers, our teachers are, are provoking us to be more progressive, right? Get with the times. Get with this new morality, and yet we are called to hold to an ancient faith, an ancient message. We are called to hold firm to what we have in the scriptures, even though it may seem outdated, even though it may seem unfitting to our modern secularized world. We are called to hold firm to the message we have in the scriptures. Now, as we continue in verses 2 through 4, notice what the author does. He, he goes on to prove that abandoning the gospel has dire consequences. And he wants to show this by, by emphasizing that if you abandon the gospel of Christ, there, there are consequences to pay. And he does this with what we can call lesser to greater argument. All right, so there's a, a nice logical rhetoric term for you, a lesser to greater argument. Argument. So here's the argument that he's using. He's saying, since the lesser message, i.e. the law of Moses, had severe consequences for living in disobedience to it, how much greater are the consequences for disobedience to the superior message? And so he begins in verse 2 by showing that the previous message, the law, did have severe consequences. Look what we read in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice, the first, mes- uh, the first message received just retribution when it was disobeyed. But now he wants to prove that the consequences are even greater for those who disobey the gospel. See, the first thing he says here about this previous message is that it was delivered by angels. Remember, we, we, we discussed this last week. Here he's making the argument that the angels delivered the, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And why is that significant? Remember what we talked about last week in chapter 1. We saw that Christ is superior to the angels. And because Christ is superior to the angels, his message is superior to the message that the angels proclaimed, right? Because the messenger of the final word is greater, the message of the final word is greater. 
and that's extremely significant. And now look how he continues. He says, every transgression and act of disobedience received just retribution. Think about this. The old covenant had all sorts of consequences for disobeying the law. Think about the wilderness generation. We'll read a lot more about the wilderness generation later on in Hebrews. The wilderness generation is the group of Israelites who left Egypt and were on the way to Israel. Think about this. Did that generation ever see the promised land? The answer is actually no, because of their disobedience. There was a whole generation of Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years because they disobeyed God. God told them, because of your disobedience, you will not see the promised land. And he, he essentially let them wander off into the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation passed away. So it wasn't the generation that left Egypt that entered into the promised land, it was their children. Their children entered into Israel. That's because the, the older generation, the wilderness generation, they were disobedient to the message of God. Similarly, think about the, the old covenant provided all sorts of warnings of exile. If you disobey this word, you will be thrown into exile. Well, what happened to the Israelites? They enter into the promised land, and for generations, they are disobedient to the word of God. What happens to them? Generations later, they go into exile. They go into Babylon in exile because they disobeyed the word of God. You see, the Old Testament was reliable. The message that came through angels was reliable. It promised judgment for those who disobeyed it, and when they disobeyed it, they received the judgment that they were promised. So now, verses 3 and 4. Now this has, it has significant implications. If this is the case, if this old, less superior message that came through Moses had great consequences for disobedience, then how can we escape if we abandon Christ? How can we escape if we abandon the final message? That's the argument here. So now he's going to show how superior this message is. Halfway through verse 3, he says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, distributed according to his will. So notice what he said there. While there was this previous message that came through angels, the final message came through the Lord himself. He declared it. This wasn't a message that was declared by the messenger. This was declared by the king himself. He came to earth. He made this message known. We also see that this message is superior because it was accompanied by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to the will of God. You see, this message, when it was proclaimed, there were all sorts of miraculous deeds done in the midst of the people so that they could see that this message is authentic. God was authenticating his message through the means of these miracles, proving that this message is sincere, that is legit. And so this message is, it's a greater message. It's the final offer of salvation. It's the final word from God that has come through the mouth of Christ and through the life of Christ. But if we neglect this great salvation, how will we 
survive? How will we escape? Notice what he says here. He says the disobedience to the law had great consequences and because of that there's worse expectations for those who forsake Christ consider the phrase here how shall we escape it's clear what he has in mind here clearly he has in mind here final judgment final damnation apart from Christ if we walk away from Christ if we abandon the message of the gospel judgment awaits now, that's, verses, that's what we find in verses 1 through 4. A strong, severe, harsh warning. And so what I want to do now is I want to back up. And I want to consider how we should approach these different warnings that we're going to address throughout the book of Hebrews. Because this book is littered with, with warnings, one after another. And to understand the book, we actually need to understand the, the warnings because they, these exhortations, they're fundamental to the overall message of the book. You see, with every new topic, there's another warning at hand. When he's talking about the high priest, another warning. When he's talking about finding the, the eternal promised land, another warning comes. When he talks about the better sacrifice that we have in Christ, another warning is associated with all of these wonderful truths that, uh, that make up the gospel. So if we're going to understand the book, we need to understand these warnings. So I want to spend a bit of time considering how we can approach these passages. Some people, they approach these passages with a defensive demeanor. Here's what I mean by that. They come to them and they automatically are on the defense. There's one whole group. They come to these passages and they're, they're on the defense. And that's because there's another group that come to these passages and they say, you can lose your salvation. Look, Hebrews says it. So you have this one group over here saying, you can lose your salvation. And then you have this other group over here coming to all of these passages on the defense and saying, wait a second, wait a second. No, you can't lose your salvation. And there's a clash over the meanings of all of these warnings. And because of all of these different views, there, there are a number of different interpretations of of all of these verses. So, I want to begin by asking the all-important question, can you lose your salvation? We need to just ask this question out front so that as we move through the rest of these these chapters, we will have uh, some context in mind. So tonight, because this is the first warning that we see in Hebrews, I want to spend an extended period of time talking about this. We're going to hit on uh, five or six different passages that teach on this very thing so that we can hopefully come to Hebrews uh, well aware of what, the scriptures te- of what the scriptures teach on this. So let's begin in the book of John. Turn with me to the book of John. I want to look at two different passages in John. First, I want to look at chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, and then we'll jump forward to chapter 10. So these are words straight from the mouth of Christ. Here in John, he is teaching on this very reality. Can someone come to me, find salvation in me, look to me in faith, will I cast them away? Is there anything that they can do in order to forsake this salvation that they have? So look at chapter 6 of John, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the, one, the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So notice a couple of things here. First, we see here in verse 37 that Christ says, I will never cast anyone out who comes to me. Verse 38, we see that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And then in verse 39, he, explained what the, he explains what the Father's will is that Jesus should lose no one whom the Father gives to him. Finally, in verse 40, we see that Jesus speaks in no uncertain terms. Here he says that he will raise everyone who looks to him for salvation. It's a guarantee. So think about this for a moment. The sovereign king, who chapter 1 says, sits on the throne at the right hand of the majesty on high, He is on your side and he is declaring in these verses, you will not be lost. I have you. I will not let you go. Right? That is the most comforting reality for Christians. Seriously. There is nothing we can do to forsake uh, or to to flee from the presence of Christ. If, If we are his, then he has us and he will not let us go. Christ the king is on our side. Turn to chapter 10 now in the book of John. Verses 27 to 30. Here Jesus is describing his ministry as the great shepherd. The good shepherd who, t- who cares for and tends for his sheep. Who cares for the church. Here's what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands my father who has given them to me he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand I and the father are one so here Christ the good shepherd is saying I hold my sheep in my hands and no one can take them from me and then He says, the father has them in his hands and no one can take the sheep from his father. And then he goes on and there's this wild Trinitarian statement. I and the father are one, right? The Trinity has declared in eternity past, all of my sheep are guaranteed to see my face one day, someday soon. The Trinity has declared salvation is firmly established for the sheep. If you are a sheep, Salvation is yours. There's nothing to fear. No one can take us out of, out of Christ's hand. No one can take us out of the Father's hand. But let's keep going. There's more to say here. Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. This passage is, is one of the most extensive uh, passages explaining this, this truth. Can you lose your salvation? Romans 8, 28. And we'll go all the way down to verse 39. Romans 8.28 And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that, they, or that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So think about that for a moment. Here we see that if you have been foreknown by the Father, if you have been predestined by the Father, if you've been called by the Father, if you've been justified by the Father, you have been glorified already. Well, glorified throughout the New Testament, that's a word that's specifically used for us when we are in the presence of God. And here, he's saying this reality is already true of the church. If you are a sheep, you have, in a real sense, already been glorified. You will see the Father face to face, and that's guaranteed. And this matter gets even more clear. Look at verse 34. Chapter 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who intercedes, or who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Why is it that we do not have to fear tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It's because we are not condemned if we are in Christ. The work of Christ has sealed our fate. The fact that Christ has died on our behalf has made this promise sure that we do not have to fear separation from our God. Christ has made it sure. Verse 37. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. That, again, that's profound. So even when I have a week that is awful and wretched, full of sin, will that separate me from the love of Christ? No. Think of David and Bathsheba. Right? This, is, this is somewhat different. Right? He's, he's in a different covenant than we are. He's in the old covenant. But think of what happened with David and Bathsheba. I mean, that is horrible stuff. Stealing a man's wife, sleeping with her, and then to cover up your sin, you send that man into the battle lines to be killed. And yet, David is still called a son of God. He's still called a child. Even with the most heinous sin that we can imagine, God is still showing grace to David. Our salvation is not wavering. 
because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Not, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Now we need to look at one more passage. And this is extremely important for us to understand because this passage also shows that our perseverance is brought about by God himself. God's sovereign grace sustains us. Look now to Philippians 1.6. I, I want you to see this verse because this is, this is profound. Philippians 1.6. A couple pages to the right from Romans. Here we have one verse that summarizes all of, all of what we're hearing from, from all of these other passages. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the teaching here is that God began a good work in us. If you are a Christian, God has begun a good work in you. And this verse says, if God has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. There's no question marks about it. He will bring it to completion. This means God is the one who enables you to start bearing fruit as a Christian. And he is the one who enables you to bear fruit as a Christian until the day you die. God is the one who who produces in you a heart that loves and trusts the king. And then he enables you throughout the entirety of your life to continue to love and trust the king. This is essential for us to understand. The true church perseveres. The true church remains faithful to Christ. The true church doesn't abandon the gospel. The true Christian remains steadfast in his or her commitment to Christ. Back to David. David did not remain in his sin. He repented. He repented. Think of Peter denying Christ three times while Christ is facing persecution. Peter is right next to him denying him. Denying that that he ever knew the man. But Peter repented and received God's grace. You see, true faith perseveres. In the fall, we went through 1 John. If you're here, we went through 1 John um, throughout the the course of the fall. And we, we went to... Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, and we spent some time there because of how important that passage is to the same idea. I want to just read this to us. Verse 19 of chapter 2 in 1 John. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. So here's what's going on here. I don't know if you remember this, but in 1 John, there was all of these people who were abandoning, abandoning Christ, much like what we have in the book of Hebrews, people who are tempted to abandon Christ. And what 1 John says is, hey, listen, when they leave the church, they're making their true identity known. When they leave Christ, forsake Christ, their true identity is, is being portrayed to everyone. They weren't true believers in the first place. 
they weren't true Christians in the first place. If they were true Christians, they would have remained with us. They would have continued with us. You see, genuine Christians remain in the church. Genuine Christians remain faithful to Christ. Not out of their own doing, not out of their own muster, no, because Christ is at work in them, because the Holy Spirit is propelling them and giving them the ability to remain faithful. So I want to just summarize what we've seen in all of these different passages. We've seen that true Christians will never and can never fall away from Christ. And when someone does, it proves that either they were never a Christian in the first place, or in that situation, we wait and hope for them to return to the fold. Those are your only two options. If someone is a true, or if someone, if someone abandons Christ, either they were true Christians and they're going to return, or they weren't true Christians and they're going to show, show their, their fruit by, by forsaking Christ and never coming back, showing that they were never actually a part of the church in the first place. And so these warnings that we have in Hebrews, what's the point of them? Well, they do two things. The warnings here in the book of Hebrews are one of many ways that God has decided to sustain his church. So God gives Christians warnings so that they will remain faithful to the gospel. And true Christians, they walk to the edge, to the cliff. They see the warning sign. If you fall, you will perish. And they turn around and walk the other way. That's how the warnings work. But here's what these warnings also do. They also cause, cause uh, false believers to evaluate their own lives to see whether or not they are truly Christians in the first place. These, these warnings, they, they prompt you. They prompt everyone. Do I actually trust in Christ? Am I actually going to remain faithful? And for some, it's a means of, of fulfilling Philippians 1.6, right? The God who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. One way he will bring it to completion is by giving you warnings that will prompt you to remain faithful. For others, these warnings are, are an opportunity for them to evaluate whether or not they are true Christians in the first place. Now, before we move on, I want to show that the book of Hebrews is extremely practical when it comes to these warnings, I've learned a ton uh, uh, from just reading these, these uh, warnings at face value. For instance, I have a, a friend that I grew up with. We went to church together. We grew up down the street from each other. We were in youth group together, um, accountability partners, the whole, the whole deal. And when I was home one winter uh, for Christmas from college, we went out to lunch together. And we went to Chick-fil-A, which I know a lot of you are super stoked on. And, uh, yeah, not a big deal when you're in Florida and they're on every corner. But, hey, <laughs> we went to Chick-fil-A. And uh, we sat down at a booth, and he looked across uh, the table at me, and he told me that he had decided that he wanted to live in sin. He, he knew what God's word said. He knew that God's word prohibited the lifestyle that he wanted to live in, but he wanted to just live in open homosexuality. He, he was just decided on this. And in that moment, I'm faced with, I'm faced with a, a question. 
Am I going to look at him and just say, you know, man, it's all good. True Christians, they're, they're never going to lose their salvation, man. You're good. Would that be helpful in that moment? No. Even though I really thought my friend was a Christian. I mean, we grew up together. I knew, I knew his struggles, but I knew that he was striving to be faithful to the gospel. So even though I knew for years he had been striving and, and fighting his sin and trying to remain faithful to Christ, even though I knew that, it's not going to be helpful for me in that moment to just look at him and go, you know what, man, you're good. You're never going to lose your salvation. That's not helpful. And, and I think because I had been informed by books like Hebrews, that's not the way I approached that. I, I, because I knew him well, I looked him in the eyes and told him, if you're going to do this, you are forsaking Christ for hell. You realize that. You realize that, right? If you forsake Christ for your sin, you are saying, I want to perish. That's what you're telling God. And thankfully, because of conversations like the one I had with him and what uh, conversations that other people had with him and because ultimately God was at work in his heart and he was, re- he was responding well to the word of God, he repented. And even to this day, he is walking in faithfulness to Christ. And, and, and like, we can be thankful for that. But I do wonder, if I just looked at him and said, dude, it's all good, don't worry about it. You aren't gonna lose your salvation. And if other people who were talking with him were telling him the same thing, what would happen? What would have happened to him? You see, the warnings within Scripture are essential. They're essential for Christians. We need these warnings. If we're going to walk faithfully to, with Christ, we need them. And so, with that, I want to now jump back to verse 1 of chapter 2. And I want to spend some time thinking practically now. What does it look like to pay closer attention to what we have heard? Remember, that is the primary command in these verses. That's, that's the primary emphasis of these verses. Pay attention to what we have heard. So how do we do that? I have four, four ways to fulfill this commandment. Four ways. First, go to a church that preaches expositional sermons. So whether you're here in Brentwood, Antioch, or whether you move to a different city or um, you, you have to move for school or work, go to a church that preaches the word expositionally. So what does that mean? By and large, there are two different types of preaching what we call topical preaching, and what we call expositional preaching. And here's the difference between these two ideas. Topical sermons, topical preaching does this. It says, I have an idea. A preacher will say, I have an idea that I want to preach on. Here's what I'm going to preach. I want to preach on leadership. And I have eight different key roles or or key ideas for, for being a good leader. All right, where can I go in the Bible to support my idea here? Where can I go in the scriptures to support my premise? Here are eight great lessons for a good leader. That would be a topical sermon. And there's a place for that. That's not essentially wrong. It's not, it's not all, uh, uh, bad all the time. 
But expositional sermons, on the other hand, go to the Bible, and instead of coming with a preconceived notion about what I'm going to preach, we come to the Bible and say, what does it say? That's my main point. What's this passage teach me? That's what I'm going to preach. Just a simple distinction between topical and expositional preaching. And so think for a moment about the dangers associated with a church that primarily or only preaches topically. If you are only preaching topical sermons, or if you're primarily preaching topical sermons, you're not going to hear the entire counsel of God. Instead, you're only going to hear what the preacher wants to preach on. I want to preach on leadership. I want to preach on on, on relationships or marriage. Those are good things to preach on. But if that is your approach to figuring out what you're going to preach on, you're not going to hear, as a, as a congregant of that church, you're not going to hear the entirety of Scripture proclaimed. Typically what's going to happen is the pastor is going to just choose topics that he wants to preach on and he's going to avoid controversial topics. Right? He's not going to teach on difficult things, controversial things, if he's just coming with his own idea about what he wants to preach on. Another danger to this is that it's typical for a topical preacher to distort scripture. It's very easy to distort scripture when you're preaching those types of sermons because you are coming to the Bible with an idea. This is what I want to preach. Where can I prove that from the scriptures? And what almost inevitably happens is that you take a verse out of context you go, oh, this, this verse says a lot about leadership. And then you go back to the chapter, and you're reading the chapter, and you're like, this doesn't say anything about leadership. This is about this man sending, sending his, his, his wife off to live with another man. Like, what in the world does this have to do with leadership? So there's a, there's a tendency to take a verse out of its context and then say, yeah, this supports my idea. The benefits, however, of expositional preaching. So I want to camp on this because I know not all of you are going to remain at Golden Hills forever. I know many of you are going to you're going to go off to school, and when you get there, you're going to be looking for a church. And so I want to camp on this some more. The benefits of expositional preaching, however, is that you hear the entire counsel of God. You hear you, you hear what the scriptures have to say. It's not a pastor just coming to the word of God and saying, okay, what do I want them to hear? Instead, it's a pastor coming and saying, God, what do you have to say? Paul, in Acts 20, when he's talking to the, the, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, he looks them in the eyes, and it's the last time he's going to ever see them, and he tells them, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I made known to you everything God says. I didn't avoid touchy topics. I didn't avoid controversial lessons. I went through the entirety of Scripture. Nehemiah 8.8 says something very similar. The prophet Ezra stands up before the people and he begins to teach the nation of Israel and he goes word by word and he explains the meaning of the words to the people so that they can understand the message in their own language. You see, our church right now, Golden Hills, on Sunday, we're about to go through First Timothy uh, as, as a church, and we're going to be going through that as uh, Kairos small groups. Many of our small groups will be going through that as well. 
And think about this for a moment. 1 Timothy 1 talks about how homosexuality is sin. 1 Timothy 2 talks about how women should not preach. 1 Timothy 3 talks about how only men should be elders. Think about that for a moment. If you're only preaching topical sermons, you know what what book I'm going to avoid? I'm going to avoid 1 Timothy because there's a lot of controversy there. But thankfully, uh, you know, Pastor Phil, Pastor Larry, they're saying, you know what? What does God say? We want to declare what God has said. I'm not going to avoid touchy topics because they're unpopular. God has spoken to this, and therefore we need to speak to it. So just so you know, this is why, the, why I preach the way I do. This is, this is why I preach uh, verse by verse. We're going to be in Hebrews until October, FYI. Because I just want to go through verse by verse. Here's what God has said. And I want to make sure you see that. This is why when I come to a passage, I focus on very specific details. And I know for some of you, you're like, man, this is boring, way too detail-oriented. I don't care about grammar. I don't care about any of this, you know, nitty-gritty stuff. I want big picture. I get that. I get that. But here's, here's why I do that. Because I want you, after I preach, to be able to go to that passage and say, okay, everything he said is clearly there. Right? If, if I went to chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 4 in Hebrews, and I came away and gave a message about leadership, and you went back to that and you said, I, I don't think that's what it says. That would not be helpful. I want you to walk away going, okay, everything he said wasn't very surprising because it's, it's already there. It's right there. It, it wasn't surprising at all. There weren't any uh, like weird moments where he pulled something out of nowhere that I never knew was coming. No, he just went to the next word. That's my goal. I hope that when, as you walk away, you go, I can do exactly what he did. I can study my Bible and, and see what God has to say. That's my goal, and I, I strongly... I strongly hold to that. And I'm going to preach this way until the day I die. Hopefully. Hopefully. That doesn't mean I'm not going to preach topical sermons. By the way, the five solas was a topical series. Just so you know. So we just did that. So the five solas is topical. I will do that by occasion, but uh, by and large, I'm going to just expositional sermons. So, okay. We'll move much faster from here on out. Second. The second way you can pay attention to what we have heard is by committing yourself to the local church. Committing yourself and dedicating yourself to a community of Christians. Here's why. Because as you surround yourself with godly Christians, they will look at you and help you to pay attention to what God has said. And then you can look at them and help them to pay attention to what God has said. You can hold each other accountable. You can help people in community. And so to pour into your local church, dedicate yourself to the local church. And I would go even further than that, and I would say become a member of your local church. And here's why. The whole point of membership. I know that's not necessarily a popular idea. It's not necessarily we hear... Uh, We don't necessarily hear that preached on very often. But when you commit to membership, what you're doing is you're making a public declaration to the church. I am committed to you. Hold me accountable. And you're saying to the church, I am committing to you and I, I will seek to hold you accountable. I will help you to pay attention to what God has said. 
So that, that's the point of membership. That's the significance of membership. It's a public declaration. I, I'm willing to commit to this body of Christians and fulfill what I see here in Scripture. Third, if you want to pay closer attention to the final word that we have in Christ, spend time both surveying and mining God's word. I chose those words for a reason. First, survey God's word. Read large chunks of scripture. Get on a a Bible reading plan that's going to help you to systematically read the entire Bible. If you want to pay attention to what God has said, you need to know what God has said. (laughs) That means you need to read the Bible. You need to know what it says. You need to know what God has said in all scripture, from, from Genesis to Revelation. But you also need to mine God's word. Not only survey it, not only um, um, look at it at a broad level, you need to look at it narrowly. You need to mine God's word. So go to a specific passage, maybe a few verses like we're doing tonight, and try to figure out every single thing that you can from those three or four verses. Spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes on, on four verses just to see what you can get from those verses. Get a commentary to help you read through that that passage. Get a study Bible where you can look at the notes at the bottom of the page that will help you understand what those three, four, five verses mean. So read broadly and read narrowly because that will help you understand what God has said. Finally, You can pay attention to the final word. You can pay attention to what has been said and what we have heard by praying through scripture. We need to allow the word of God to dictate what we pray and how we pray. I had a professor in seminary who would often say, when we pray, we have the tendency to say the same old things about the same old things. When we pray, we have the tendency to say the same old things about the same old things. And all he means by that is we so often come to God with the same exact prayer request that we prayed yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. We get in this routine, this rut of praying the same thing, essentially, day after day, week after week, month after month. And when that is what our prayer life is like, or our prayer life is like we stop praying. <laughs> And then we stop saying anything. We stop praying entirely. Instead, what we ought to do is go to a passage and say, God, help me to do what I am reading in this passage. Help me to believe what you are saying in this passage. I want to trust you like like the author of the psalm that I'm reading trusts you. I want to live out this exhortation that I'm reading about in the book of Hebrews. When I read Jesus' words, I want to obey them. When I read about the fact that I'm going to spend eternity in in his presence, in Christ's presence, I want that to motivate me towards joy. Help me to have joy over that very reality. See, when you start to pray through Scripture and you start allowing the the Scriptures to inform the way you pray, that is going to prohibit you from praying the same old thing about the same old thing. It's going to help you to pray something new. That's why I was super thankful for the way that Blair prayed earlier, going to uh, Isaiah 61 and helping us to pray through that passage 
and hear what God has to say and then, and then asking him to help us to see what he has said. And so as we close, here's what I want to do. I want to spend about 60 seconds, maybe a minute or so, where each of you on your own can look at Hebrews chapter 2 and spend a moment just on your own praying through this passage asking God to help you understand what he has said, help, help you to obey what he is saying, and help you to remain faithful. So in the quiet, uh, on your own, spend, spend a minute or so, and then I want to close this out in prayer. Father, we do not want to neglect the salvation that we have in Christ. We do not want to drift. We want to set our anchor in what you have said. We want to, to focus and pay close attention to everything that we have heard in your word, from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation. 